Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome, as we do everything every Sunday here uh, to Res City. Uh, glad to have you worshiping with us this morning, um, as always. Uh, we're going to be wrapping up our series here uh, before we head into Easter, so I'm excited to do that. Uh, we'll hop into it here in just a sec. Let me pray first, though, before we do that. Father, thank you that you are with us this morning. As we come together in worship, as we come together in joy, just like we, we just sung about finding joy in you, Lord. Um, help. I pray that we would decrease and you would increase uh, this morning so that we may find a deep joy rooted in your grace, Lord, and your power and your love and your forgiveness for us as we come here and we, we study your word, as we worship together, as we uh, join in fellowship with one another, Lord, as we take communion um, here in a little bit, Lord, in, in all of it, Lord. We just pray that you give us joy as your spirit fills us, your presence is with us, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was at Target recently, and uh, I was in the book section, and I was just kind of looking through the, the books, like the bios. You know those bios that they have on the back of books? Like it's on the back flap of hardcover ones. It's like a little picture of the author maybe, or in, hard, or in a paperback. It's just kind of in the very back. Um, gives you a little description of the author. I don't know if you like to read those before you read a book, if you've never heard of the author, to kind of like, you know, or like, does this person have any cred at all? Like, you know, do they, should I trust that they know what they're talking about a little bit? And so I was just reading through those and trying to be like comparing some of them. And uh, some of them are pretty impressive. And I, I, here's, an, here's an example. Here's one I took, and I did leave the name of the author off and the book title because I'm going to tease him a little bit here. I'm sure he's great. I don't even remember the name of the book. I'm sure it's awesome. But I, I just wanted you to see this a little bit. I thought it was pretty, pretty impressive. Okay, so this author is a, no, a number one New York Times bestselling author. He's an award-winning storyteller, a podcast host, and a former monk dedicated to helping people train their minds for peace and purpose every day. In 2017, Forbes named him to their 30 under 30 list for his game-changing impact in media. His viral videos have been viewed more than 10 billion times, and he is followed by over 50 million people across social media. In 2019, he created a podcast. It's now the world's number one health and wellness podcast. I didn't check that. I didn't fact check that. Um, he's been a keynote speaker around the world, invited to Google, Microsoft, Netflix, and American Express, among others. Over 2 million people have attended his online school, and his genius coaching community provides weekly programming on health and wellness to thousands of members in over 100 countries. He is the chief purpose officer at uh, this company he created and co-founded another company with his wife. I could not write a bio like that. I would be really impressed if any of you could. If you could, good for you. I would love to see that. Um, when you read something like that, you realize how much you're underachieving, right? You realize, you know, you're, you, you, missed, you messed something up somewhere if, you know, you're not on your... And I, I saw a picture of the guy. He wasn't that old. Like, he looked like he was somewhat close to my age. Um, when you read a bio like this, you wonder, has this guy ever done anything that wasn't, like, an incredible success? Right? Like, has he ever been fired from a job? Like, you would think not from reading that. Has he ever had a pimple before? You would think, probably not. You know, if, if his dog is misbehaving, does he say, hey, did you know American Express just asked me to come give a keynote speech at an event? And because he's so great, a miracle happens, and the dog actually speaks back to him and says, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. I will quit barking. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding, right? I'm sure he's a really normal, great dude. Um, I'm sure he's really humble about all his accolades. I mean, based on the Bible, he's probably the most humble guy who's ever existed. Um, but I think 
I think as we kind of make some jokes around that, right? And again, I, the book's probably great. I don't even remember the name of it. I'm not trashing the book at all. But what, I just think it's, it's interesting when we read bios like this, and you can see these on a lot of different books. Um, what it doesn't include is any hint of any weakness, right? There's nothing in there that would, we would call a weakness, a failure, a source of frustration for this author, right? We would leave that off because it would be kind of stupid. We would think no one would want to read a book written by someone who didn't seem as incredible as this guy, right? And we'll come back to all this. I want that to be kind of a theme as we go through our, our sermon today. Now, this is the last sermon in a series on uh, what is sin. That's what we, we've called it. And it's been, it's been kind of an uncomfortable one to wrestle with, I think, because we've talked about tough stuff throughout it. We've talked about the consequences and effects of sin a lot. And it's been a challenging thing, I think, to really wrestle with. But it also kind of, what it does is it brings us face to face with our weaknesses, and the parts of ourselves that we don't always like to confront or think about, right? And, and my hope as we've gone through the series is it has made you assess and evaluate and see blind spots and areas of weakness and sin and to even consider repenting and confessing those things to other people. But I get it. I get it. It's not fun. That's not an enjoyable thing we like to do. Because I think, honestly, most people are not good at having their weaknesses and faults shown to them. I know I'm not. I know that that's something I like, don't enjoy doing. Um, think about it. Like Maybe at work, you've got a coworker and you've got some negative feedback to give them. And you're anxious about their anxiety about it, right? You know that it's not going to be fun for them and you don't want to give it because you know, like, like probably like you and most other people, it's probably just, it's, they're going to hear all the really worst things in it, right? So you do the, what's the compliment sandwich? Isn't that a thing you talk about doing, right? You try to put the good thing at the front and a good thing at the back and then the hard stuff in the middle, right? It's because we're, we're thinking so hard about how we're going to give someone some hard feedback, right? Or if you know that you, someone's going to give some hard feedback to you, like, if you're honest, you'd prefer to just ghost them, right? That would be, like, your preference to get out of having to hear it. And it's, we're just not trained well in it, right? We, we don't talk about it much as a society. We're super self-focused. We're, we're, we're focused on finding our, our strengths and our, and our, and our uh, positivity. We're, we're focused on trying to find happiness, right? That's kind of the society that we all live in. That's what we've been trained to do our whole lives. And doing hard things like facing our weakness, we realize, does not lead us to those things very often. At least we think, all right? And I want to I maybe challenge that a little bit today. But the big idea of this series, okay, as we've talked about sin, as we've hopefully brought you into some confrontation with your weakness, with your sin, is, is not to wallow in it, not to tell you that you should wallow in it, you should find self-loathing or hatred of yourself in it, but to ask us, what if a profound encounter with our sin and confession of other weaknesses and the way that sin has impacted us and made us victims and enslaved us actually, by God's grace, can lead us to a better form of strength and more satisfying view of ourselves and the world around us? That's what I've wanted us to really wrestle with in this series. And I want to put a bow on that this morning as we talk about how Jesus works in our weakness. Okay, that's what I want us to, to, to really think about is is, is bringing this series to a close and kind of with a message of hope, building a bridge to Easter a little bit and reflect and talk about how we take hard and honest looks at ourselves well in a, in a Christ-centered way 
in a way that we can start to live in the tension of being, of acknowledging our weakness and sin in ourselves and actually find some hope in that, all right? So, so we're going to talk about that today. Um, the truth is, right, and we all know this, we're limited people, right? We're a duality that is sometimes capable of really great stuff, but also capable of a lot of things we, we would want to hide. Um, and that dude from the bio earlier, right, we all know that's not who he actually is, right? We know that there's a lot more, if we were really getting a snapshot of who this guy is, that would be included in there that wouldn't be as flattering. We're just aware that's how humans are. If you remember in the first sermon, I talked about how we all kind of have an 8 a.m. version of ourselves and a 2 p.m. version of ourselves. That 8 a.m. version is the one that we want to think of ourselves as. It's the one that we would want to put on a bio on the back of a book if we ever wrote one. It's that part of us that's up early, it's ready to do good. They, you know, anything that they dream, they feel is possible for them. They're going to save the world. They've read all the books on productivity and efficiency, and they eat healthy. They're planning to live forever because of it. Um, They have some good ideas of what they'd say if they ever got invited to give a keynote express at American Express. Um, and, And they do it all effortlessly, right? That's we have a part of ourselves that, that kind of feels that way. And that's how we'd like to portray ourselves to others. The identity that we find in strengths and skills assessments, the one that we write on resumes, the one that tends to show up on social media, if we have it, the one that we're trying to craft people's perception of us to have when we talk with them, the things we kind of work into conversation to let them know about us. And I think we regularly overinflate that part of us, but it is who we are at our best. The 2 p.m. version, though, is the one who gave up on saving the world because they got too distracted by their phones and they have things stacked up so far that they just don't have time for it. Um, And to be honest, they kind of hate the world at the moment, so they don't really want to save it anyway. Um, They struggle to effortlessly decide what to eat for dinner that night, let alone accomplish all their goals and plans, right? And this 2 p.m. version of us is a version of us that we are aware of that we deal with every single day. We know it's there. It's there far more than we'd like to admit. And what makes up that 2 p.m. part of us is, I think, sin, but also regular human weakness and limitation, right? And to be clear, sin and regular human limitation and weakness are not the same thing. So what we've been talking about in this series has been sin. But what I want to do today is I want to lump these two things together because I think when they kind of come together, they create in us this weakness, this limitation, the stuff that we wouldn't put on the back flap of a book bio about ourselves. And I think it's, we can lump these things together because the gospel speaks to them both. All right? I think we fear admitting we have this 2 p.m. side of us because, and I think it makes sense why, we assume that the only way to be accepted and to be the person we hope to become, even to be the best servant or follower or disciple of Jesus, which, you know, we're committed to, we want to be these people, is to be the 8 a.m. version of us and to never or as little as possible admit we're the 2 p.m. version of us, to try to project that strength to everyone around us and even to God. And to be the person on that back of the book bio always, okay? That's how the world normally works. So we assume that's what God must want of us as well. And I think deep down we think we'll be successful and we'll be accepted and loved even by God if we are more often uh, telling ourselves we're that 8 a.m. version of ourselves and projecting that strength wherever we can. But that's not true of the gospel, 
right? And I want us to really study that today by going through a passage in the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, and he has a really tumultuous relationship with these people. And we'll, we'll actually explore that deeper. We're going to be a ser- doing a sermon series this summer through the book of 1 Corinthians, so we'll kind of see some of that. But in 2 Corinthians, uh, written a little bit after that, apparently there's some new traveling teachers that have shown up in Corinth, and they want to be taken seriously by the people in that church at the expense of Paul, who had founded this church in Corinth. And so they carry with, these, with them these things called letters of recommendation, we find out in the letter. In the ancient world, you can't Google anybody, right? So you've got to f- kind of find out what someone's cred or res- resume is. And so they would carry these letters around that would ex- you know, uh, give this recommendation for why they're so great. There's resume- resumes or bios on why they should let them kind of move in and take on this role of teacher and also get paid by them too on top of that. Um, and-, and why, I think honestly, they would say you should move on from Paul because To be honest, he's not that great. I mean, did he even show you a letter of recommendation when he first started the church here? Does he even have any? Like, has he ever been a Corinthian Times bestseller? Probably not. Has he ever gotten asked to give a keynote speech at a big credit card company back in Jerusalem? Probably not. Did he even have a social media? Probably not. Did he, was he the chief purpose officer of a company that he created? Probably not. And these questions are all being asked of Paul. And Paul is, he, he hears about all this stuff, and he's like, he's the Michael Jordan meme about it. Right? He's like, I took that personally. And so he writes a letter back to them, that is 2 Corinthians. And actually a lot more is going on in this letter than just this. But what he takes issue with, we find in this letter, is this system of value and worth and really the game that these teachers are trying to make him play. Because Paul knows two things about this game, right? And we're all familiar with this game, right? We all know how this game works, right? The first thing he knew about this game is that if he focused on trying to create an image of himself that was faultless and perfect and try to project that in one of these letters of recommendation, um, he'd probably lose to these teachers, right? He still, he put all that work into it to try to compare himself, make himself seem better than these other people, and he probably still wouldn't win because these teachers were artists of self-promotion, right? You, you know what that looks like, right? Um, people, a lot of people are like this nowadays, I think, where they, they kind of, I, we're almost told it's like a skill I think we have to learn, the skill of self-promotion of ourselves, they were always going to win any on-paper battle that Paul tries to have with them because that's really what they cared about, right? Just winning that battle up front, they weren't that concerned with what would happen afterwards. And so for Paul, it would be a losing game to try to compete with them for some reason. Okay? And I think the second reason that Paul doesn't want to get into this game with them is because he knows that this kind of view of power, of strength, of how things get done doesn't really cut it when you compare it to the message that he was preaching to them, to the ethic, to the power of the gospel that he was trying to organize their lives and the community of their church around. This was totally different than that. It had nothing to do with it. Okay? Paul doesn't see this as lining up at all with what we could call the cruciform, centered on the crucifixion of Jesus, the cruciform reality of Jesus' life and death. Right? Paul knows that we follow a God whose most iconic moment started with being crucified on a cross, of being accused of being a criminal, even though he wasn't one, and not even fighting back. 
right? That's the kind of thing you leave off the back of a book bio about yourself, right? You kind of conveniently, you talk about like, yeah, there was this one time where I made a bunch of fish and bread out of like a few things, right? And, and, and I healed some people. Not the part where at the very end I got, you know, murdered. I got executed as a, as a criminal by the state, Okay, you just leave that part off of the book bio. But for Paul, that was actually at the heart of everything. So he couldn't just disregard that and play this game that would say that stuff's kind of not exciting and not cool and not where we should center our life as Christians, right? Because Paul knew to follow after Jesus was to suffer similar humiliations. And Paul knew that all the best things that he could list about himself were all things that God had done anyway. And so he chooses to kind of play the game with him a little bit, but to turn it on its head. And he says, okay, fine, I'll boast with you. I'll give you my resume, my qualifications, but I'm going to give them to you totally upside down, kind of an anti-back of the back flap of a book bio. That's what I'll send you, right? All the 2 p.m. version part of me, right? And so he lists these qualifications, like the constant pressure from traveling so much, right? This took a lot out of him, right? Traveling for him was not a fun, relaxing thing he did on vacation to get away from stuff. He actually was a vagabond. Um, he talks about how um, he'd been treated like a criminal for angering the wrong people and how uh, instead of being adored everywhere he went, a lot of times he'd find people didn't like him very much and they would just beat him up. <laughs> so he shared that. Um, how uncomfortable and unposh a life he lived, how un-Instagram worthy his life was, and how, if he was really honest with them, he felt a daily anxiety from being a pastor, the lack of good vibes that he felt from the work he did, always thinking about the state of people in his churches and how they're doing. I can attest, that's a real thing. Like, I get that, that weight of, of people you love and you care about, but knowing they're struggling or wondering how they're doing, that does weigh on you. And then he ends with this spiritual experience he had, um, the kind that people often presume marks you out as a special kind of person. Um, these kind of experiences were probably included in this letters of recommendation that these people had shared too. But he, he talks about one that he'd had, but he downplays it a ton. He, he's very coy with what happened, and he doesn't even talk about himself in first person. He talks about himself in third person. And he doesn't even really want to draw their experience to that spiritual experience that he had. He wants to draw their attention instead to something humiliating that happened after it. And so he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. And we find in the next verse, which I'll read in a second, that that didn't happen. So for him, it's a humiliation that even after this great experience that God had allowed him to have, he couldn't get God to answer his prayer, to get this thorn in his flesh taken away from him. Right? We hear all the time about, you know, we learn about prayers and how to pray in a certain way that, like, you know, God's going to answer it all the time, and he's, you know, you're going to be triumphant, you're going to conquer all your enemies, you're going to move mountains with prayers and, and having faith, right? Paul couldn't even do that, apparently. Right? And so he's talking about this as like a real humiliation to him. Let me talk really quickly. I want to take a bit of a, 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 a tangent here. I just want to touch on Satan and the thorn. Okay? So actually, originally this sermon was going to be all about Satan, and 
uh, I figured I should still talk about him a little bit. So he's, you know, he's going to make an appearance in this series on sin, but just a little bit um, because of this passage. Um, and, and this thorn, too. So let's start with the thorn. So what's the thorn? No one knows for sure. And I think that's Paul's intent. He's very, he's very vague about it. I think he's intentionally doing that. Um, theories go from some chronic physical issue that he had to maybe uh, some temptation that wouldn't go away. Some, whatever it was, it was some reminder of his limitation, some present reminder that he was a limited person. He was weak. He talks about his weakness a lot after this. And I think it's Paul's intent to be vague because by being vague, we can all find, I think, in this, our own thorns, right? Our own thorns in the flesh that are present reminders of our weakness. And when we do that, we can enter into what Paul is going to say here about how we find strength in that. And instead of trying to boast about how great we are, we can actually acknowledge our, our weakness and limitations. So I think it's a good thing. We'll get into what he says about it here in a second. But wh- who is Satan and how does he fit with the sin and weakness, right? Now, I know, like, I actually have seen studies, like in the church even, like there's actually declining numbers of people who actually believe in Satan. And I understand some of, of, of the, the reasons for people, but for me, Jesus takes him seriously, and I really think we ought to start there too. Um, scripturally speaking, Satan is a shadowy figure who sort of mysteriously pops up sometimes in Scripture. And there's really never a full-on description of the character that's given. Sometimes you hear, you know, Christians try to come up with a backstory uh, for him. Some of it's kind of iffy, I think, to be honest. But that's not really the point anyway, I think. Um, The Bible's not really interested in answering questions like, where did sin and evil come from? Or what was Satan's name before it was Satan? Or does Satan wear red spandex and use a pitchfork? Or does he dress like the guy in that Lucifer TV show I've seen on Netflix? Right? That's really not what the Bible's interested in. Satan isn't even actually a name. I don't know if you knew that. We, we talk about it like it's a name of someone. It's actually just a Hebrew word for the adversary. That's all it actually is. Um, and so the Bible, I think, is more interested in, instead of trying to tell us all about this stuff, to actually inhabit the world we're living in, where evil and sin are kind of just the norm and assumed, and we're told there's some figure who contributes to it in some way, right? In Scripture, we see Satan deceive, we see him seduce, we see him accuse, and we see him destroy. We often find him showing up when people find themselves at some crossroads to try to tempt and harass them to put a thorn in their flesh, or to offer them a path towards sin, to resist God, to maybe take part in idolatry or vandalism of shalom. Think back to the sermon we talked about where we talked about Adam and Eve, right? The serpent who comes and talks to them. It's an instance of this. This motif is sometimes called the, the trial in Scripture, or the temptation, a moment where God's people are given a chance to show their loyalty and love and faith to God, but they often fail. Right? That gravity of sin that we talked about in last week's sermon takes over, but that doesn't mean that there isn't sometimes a push that's given too. And that's where like, Satan likes to come in and help out with that. And while Satan does what he can to generally make our life either so charmed that we forget God entirely or so miserable that we hate God, his fate and the fate of his mission are never really in doubt in Scripture. Right? Here's a couple of examples. John 12, 31, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. 1 John 3, 8, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And Romans 16, 20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Right? That's 
the future. Or really, we're living in the present, but it's anticipating that future. And in the meantime, Satan is like some team, his, his team is down 100 to nothing at halftime. There's no chance in the world that he can win, but they still have to play the rest of the game out. And so what do you think he's going to do? Well, he's going to get chippy. He's going to try to hurt some people while he's still got some time left before the game is sealed. It seems like that's what Satan's up to ever since then. So anyway, back to Paul. Right? Let's get back to 2 Corinthians here. Paul finds himself harassed by Satan here. And he's dealing with some reminder of his limitation, this thorn. But what he says is this. Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, Paul says something really weird here. I delight in weaknesses, in insult, in persecution, in hardship, in difficulties. That's really not how it's supposed to work, right? We've been talking about how that's really not the way the world works, right? We find this to be a very hard thing for us to do. I don't know the last time you find yourself delighting in those things, but I think it's really important to note, all right? And if you take notes, I would write this down. Some of the most profound meetings with the presence of God in his spirit of connecting to Jesus and experiencing his power comes when we allow ourselves to inhabit a place of weakness. Okay, those are going to be some of the most profound meetings we have, I think, with God and his spirit. I think it can be really liberating and healthy and cathartic, honestly, to follow Paul in this exercise of foolishness sometimes, to kind of quit trying to project all this strength, all the competency, and to just put the helplessness you might feel before God, to maybe write an anti-back of the book bio. I think it's good for us to ask this question sometimes, what is in my anti-biography? Why not just put this before God and see what he does with it? right? What is the bio of your weaknesses? What are areas of, of your life where things are actually going really poorly, right? Or maybe things aren't quite as bad as you think, but you just kind of still feel like a loser because of it. Maybe some, someone else would say, that actually doesn't seem that bad to me, but for some reason you feel like it's a, it's a horrible thing, right? We all have a list like this, right? We all are pretty aware of it. To be honest, we could have a, a list of a hundred things that are going really good, and a list of two things that are going really bad, and we would think about that list of where things are going bad more than that other list. Okay, we're used to thinking about this list. If I were going to write one, it would, it would look like this. Joel Stegman has never been a New York Times bestselling author, and he has no awards for his preaching, and he's dedicated to helping people follow Jesus deeply every day. But if he's honest, he regularly wonders if he's making any real impact. In 2017, Forbes ran a a list of 30 under 30, and Joel was left off of it. He has no viral videos, and your mom has a larger social media footprint than he does. He's been a keynote preacher at his parents' church a few times, but that's about it, and he hasn't been asked back in a while. Over two people have attended his church, and the sermons are sometimes downloaded a few dozen times. Joel knows what some of his biggest areas of sin and lack of skills are, but he still struggles with them anyway. And there's a bunch of those he isn't even aware of. He's a pastor at Red City Church, which he co-founded with his wife, Julie, but he's convinced she's better at most of the stuff they do than he is anyway. 
Okay, that's supposed to make you laugh. <laughs> but it's, pre- it's also pretty unimpressive, right? Like, and that was my point, okay? If you want to find a pastor who's like way more successful than me, whose bio would look like closer to that one I read to you earlier, and attend that person's church, you wouldn't have to look very hard, okay? But I'll also say this. It feels incredibly good to not have to compete with the bio of whatever pastor has the top-selling book on Amazon to find my strength. To say out loud that I'm not some superstar and it's not necessary for me to be one to experience Christ's power and have real strength. Okay, this isn't about like self-hatred or anything like that, right? It's about releasing the pressure of trying to be the best and manufacturing my own strength and living in my weakness and not hating myself because I have it. We actually did this recently in a Red City leadership team meeting, our, our elder team. We actually just did, did this. Like, we just kind of shared like, where things were hard, where we were feeling like failures. We just kind of placed, you said, I feel incompetent in this situation. We just shared those things. You know how when you get together and you haven't seen anyone in a while and you're like, how's it going? And everyone, they're like, it's good. And they share all like, the good things that are going on. We did the opposite of that. And it was really awesome. I mean, we, we've shared where we feel like we didn't have a handle on things, where stuff was like stacked up against us, where places where we felt maybe not taken seriously, where we had been given maybe some great gift or opportunity, and we were excited about it, but we just kind of also admitted, I don't really know what to do with this. Like, I feel lost in where to go next with this thing. I feel a lot of pressure to nail it, but I don't really know where to go. Where things maybe felt out of control, where we've been trying to keep them from spinning out of control, and we were exhausted from it, where maybe we just kind of felt like losers, right? And there was no fake pretending, there was no silver linings, just honesty, and it was really powerful. Like, I felt God's presence in the room when we did it. I had goosebumps. I know I really needed it, at least speaking for me. It was a really, really powerful moment for me. I think it's powerful when we do that, because when we do it, we come to the place where the only word that you can hear that really matters is this, my grace is sufficient for you. My, Jesus' grace, is sufficient for you, for us. Okay? What's sufficient is not our own grace, not our own competency, not our own ability to master sin or our weakness. The only thing that's sufficient, that speaks to our embarrassments, our failures, our sin, is something we can only get because we're gifted it. Not because we've earned it or we've taken hold of it for ourselves in some way. Grace is God's activity. It's his benevolence. It's his gift of his son and his spirit and his kingdom and his new creation coming to us apart from our bad and our good. We can't earn it, and no one is disqualified from it out of hand, right? God's not looking at our book bios. He's not looking at that guy's bio from earlier and the one I just shared and saying, you know, oh, I'm going to give that first guy my grace, because he's so awesome. It's God saying, I didn't read the bios because they're irrelevant to me. I'm not choosing to give my favor based on one guy's soaring accolades and one guy's total lack of them. I'm giving my grace to you both because you both need it. Now, our next sermon series, the one we're going to be doing after Easter Sunday next week, is going to be digging deeper into grace. 
and we're calling it according to grace. And really what it is, is it's a kind of a, to me, kind of a character study of God and how his pattern is to act according to grace to people. And we're going to go through some stories in the Old Testament where we see people relying on God's grace, people who are stuck, but who are rejuvenated and led to life because God gives them, gives them his grace freely apart from any good or bad stuff that they could present to God as a reason for why he should or shouldn't give it to him, right? So consider this a little bit of an appetizer to that series. But I want to say this really clearly now, even though we'll get into this all deeper here in a little bit. I really do think that a long, healthy, and fruitful life of following Jesus comes out of a deep reflection and internalization of the statement, my grace is sufficient for you. If you want to make it in this business of following Jesus, which is tough, but not tough in the way we think it is, you have to understand and apply this, I think, daily. If you don't, you're just going to find yourself frustrated comparing your bio with other people. You're going to be frustrated when growth isn't linear, when things don't go according to your plan, when things are outside of your control, which is all the time, all the time. And you're going to get mad at God because he isn't giving you what you think you deserve and he's not fitting inside the box you've tried to cram him into. If God gave us what we deserve, it would be what we've talked about in this series, right? He'd know our normal back-of-the-book bio is not the one we might try to present to him, the one that we want to present to other people around us that we might try to convince him of. And he would know what we deserve is what we've talked about in this series. Okay, we've talked about what sin creates. It creates more sin, and it creates death. Grace is not giving that to us. And the only way, I think, ultimately, out of our weakness, of our sin, and the harassment of Satan is through this grace. It's all grace. That's all that's sufficient for us. It invites us into the powerful presence of God's Spirit, It wipes away our shame. It gives us hope. It connects us to one another, a community of people who are centered on God's grace. There's a kind of strength that we that we there's a kind of strength that we can seek that is always trying to overcome everything. And I think that's what most people are chasing on a daily basis. Right? To be the smartest, to be the best, the most competent and confident, the toughest, the richest, the most powerful, and to make that bio look as impressive as, impossi- as possible. Okay? But that strength, I think, proves its worthlessness to us anytime it fails, which is regularly. Right? You're going to be constantly afraid instead of losing that strength, and you're always going to be defending it, and you're always going to be offended when you feel someone questions it. Okay, this is where I think creating an anti-bio can be so helpful because it shows us how deluded we can get into thinking we have it all figured out. Okay, it's a dose of reality and honesty that I think we need to take on on a regular basis. So that's one kind of strength, but there's another kind of strength that comes in acknowledging our weakness and sin and having hope and faith that we will go through whatever we do and still make it. And that's the strength of God's grace. It always promises us a hope, even if that's sometimes just a little twinkle in, the, in a dark night of, of the soul that we're going through. And when we get this, we can say along with Paul, when I'm weak, I'm actually strong because that's when I actually find myself 
for the, the, in the, the, with the most of me, seeking after the only thing that is truly sufficient. Okay? Our future doesn't lie in our strength. It lies in God's grace. And I'm not saying we don't take our sin or our limitations too seriously, okay? I'm not saying they don't, they don't matter at all, right? They do. That's why we did this series, okay? That's why we talked about sin. What I'm saying is we don't take ourselves too seriously because when we do, we go to despair and burnout and self-loathing as we try to keep up with all the stuff that comes at us, right? I think that's actually where self-loathing comes from. It's not from embracing our weakness. It's from pretending we don't have any and knowing we're wrong. That's when we start to really hate ourselves, Instead, we take God and his grace seriously, like really seriously. In this series, we've talked about the sin, about sin and the havoc that it wreaks on the world around us, right? But we've also talked at every single point that we've brought up sin, what God's response is, what God is doing about it in our world, right? God's love transcends the sin we're trapped in. God's peace restores us despite us vandalizing it. God restores a world that's been corrupted. God transforms us through proper worship. God forgives us and breaks the power of sin. And here, God gives us strength and our weakness with his grace. The problem of evil is real, but so is the response of God. And I think that's where our minds need to live, in God and his grace and his son. We just did uh, these listening tours, which were really awesome. And I was actually really encouraged because when we asked people, like, you know, what are you learning? There was a theme in multiple different groups where people would bring up, I'm learning to trust God more. It was exciting to see people doing this, right? Um, Maybe you feel like you're dealing with some thorn in your flesh, some harassment by Satan. I know a lot of us are, right? We probably all are with something to some degree. You're going through a hard situation. You're wrestling with your anti-bio, okay? I can see we have this goal of trusting in God's grace. Let's make it our pattern. Let's be people who are strong, not because of how great we can project ourselves to the world around us, not because we could write Res City has the best bio of any church in the Twin Cities, right? But because we're strong because we find God's grace to be sufficient for us. We're going to move into a time of communion and worship here and invite you to come and partake in in the communion up here. Even if you're not a regular attender of Rest City, um, we want you to partake in the grace of Jesus and his blood and his body that has been given over for us. That's where our grace and our hope comes from, right? And that's the pattern we follow after, we talked about. We follow after a, a Jesus who embraced weakness, embraced hardship, embraced pain and suffering. When we take communion, we're having solidarity with Jesus in it and reminding ourselves that his grace is all that is sufficient for us. So please come and take communion with us. Uh, we'd love to have you join us, even if you're not uh, a regular attender of Breast City. We just ask that you're a follower of Jesus. And, and spend some time in worship here. Maybe you want to walk through what your anti-bio is or some, some piece of it that is, is, is weighing you down right now. Maybe you just give that up to God. Admit it to God. Don't be afraid of it because God's grace has the power to overcome it, even if you don't. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your grace is sufficient for us, God. That you don't look at us and fear our weakness or our sin, 
but instead you give us the, the strength of your grace so that we may be people who can endure through it, who can ride through it, who are not defeated by it, Lord. I pray that we would be people who live, who are fueled by the sufficiency of your grace in our day-to-day lives, God. Whatever sin or weakness or limitation we find ourselves dealing with, Lord, I pray that we would be people who rely solely on your grace, God. And as we do, that you would be with us powerfully in your presence, God, that you would transform us and give us hope and joy, Lord, that are not possible without it. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.